everyone, and thank you for joining us for another edition of Code Concepts with myself, Rachel Patterson, and Pete Roquet. Today, we have an even better, even more awesome guest speaker on with us today. Um, with over 20 years of experience in the industry, 20 plus years of experience in the industry. Um, first of all, I'd like to say I'm a huge, huge fan. I know um, Pete and I have had the pleasure and the privilege of seeing you train in person, uh, myself back in 2009 when you came to Colorado. And then I know Pete has saw you sometime in about 2012. So most importantly, we'd like to welcome uh, Corey Chalmers, our president and founder and CEO of Stary Clean and A&E's Hoarders. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Rachel and Pete. Glad to be here again. I apologize if you hear some background noise there. I'm, I'm in part of the call center, so you might hear some people talking and phones ringing. No worries at all. We're just excited to have you on with us today. Yeah, glad to be here. So one of, one of the reasons we invite different folks on our on our platform is because there's an, it's an important it's an important thing that we 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 bring out a lot of awareness of things that we may experience out in the field and a lot of us we deal with hoarders a lot some of us enjoy the whole hoarder experience I personally cannot switch it's like a car wreck I can't not watch it. And <laughs> that's funny so, you say enjoy. I don't know many people <laughs> in the code enforcement world that enjoy their hoarder customers. <laughs> they're they're just the ongoing years and years of things on their schedule. So hopefully, you know, we can talk about some steps too if you have time on, you know, how to better approach things because I know code enforcement officers really do struggle with hoarders, and it really does add a lot to their caseload. Uh, I don't know where you guys saw me, but you know, I do a lot of speaking for code enforcement. That's one of the things I really try to stress is kind of some tricks on how to work with them to get them to kind of like you better and build their trust, I think is the most important thing. That's awesome. Skills we all need to know. <laughs> right, we'll save all that for another day maybe. I know today's more biohazard talk. So, what are, what are the, so I personally saw you in the city of Long Beach, California. You did a whole hoarders tour with the, uh, through the California Association. And it, I mean, it was a great tour. You know, I mean, you went to different uh, jurisdictions all up and down California and really uh, benefited a lot from the training. And, you know, I know you were also a keynote speaker at the International Code Council. And that's another segment of code enforcement. That a lot of people don't really consider code enforcement, but it is. And, right. One of the, one of the like you said, a lot of times we get into those uh, situations where we might deal with a hoarder for years until that day when we actually start to clean up. And a lot of us in code enforcement don't have the um, skill set to deal with those types of uh, issues mm -hmm. like you do. You're a professional. Um, I remember my first hoarding case. I went into a, a cat hoarder house with no with nothing on there. I just remember coming out and my eyes were burning and I couldn't get that smell out of my nostrils for about two days. <laughs> yeah, so. yep, definitely. I know that feeling. But you just gotta, you know, you just gotta, one, you gotta have the right supplies. And I was really blown away when I did that two week tour, you know, every day speaking in a different city for code enforcement only. And I would always ask, and I don't know if you remember me asking, but who has PPE in your truck or in your car? And it blew me away that out of, you know, a hundred people, only one or two would raise their hand. I just think that's that's terrible. One, that supervisors and people in charge don't recognize the dangers that their code enforcement officers are actually faced with, um, even if it's not daily. Even if it's once a year, you have to have the right PPE to protect yourself because there are absolute dangers in these homes sometimes that could not only injure you, but eventually, um, in all honesty, kill you. Right. When you need it, you need it. You don't have it. It's not there. So, and a lot right. of us officers don't necessarily even think about that because there's some of us that don't necessarily go into homes. So just having these extra tidbits of information, because there is a time where you may not necessarily go into home, but you're going in today. So sure. absolutely having that with you and ready. Yeah. Even if it's at your own expense, if your city or county won't cover it, I mean, so what? Go spend, you know, at max a hundred dollars and get at least the minimal supplies that you have with you so that you are safe when you are faced. Because like you said, you might not even know it until it's that one day you finally get in and now you're in there and you're like, oh, crap, I, I shouldn't be in here right now. So I think right. it's just really important out of anything today to make sure that people are aware of what they should have with them at all times, even if it sits in something in your trunk that you barely ever use, have it. And that includes Narcan nowadays. I hate to say that, but with the opioid crisis and we don't know what our clients are doing in, in the homes, every one of our vans and trucks and 
personnel carry Narcan at least two doses because that's such a huge thing that we're facing now. So if you want to get into that as part of this, we certainly can. Wow. Thanks, Corey. And, and I think one of the things that people don't really realize that, you know, having PPE or having these tidbits of information is also falls under the realm of officer safety mm -hmm. because, you know, sometimes a virus is just as deadly as a bullet. If not yeah. even more, because I mean, you will have to uh, struggle through that. So, um, yeah. You know, and you know, one of the reasons we like bringing folks like yourself is because you have that experience, and you you've gone. I mean, you've you've been on the battlefield, and <laughs> I, I, you know, we love hearing the war stories because your experiences will resonate with somebody that's going through it right now, or has gone through it, or we need to continue to share this information. Yeah, and I want people to not be embarrassed or I'm too cool to wear this stuff. At the end of the day, you got to go home to your families. You don't want to take this stuff home with you. You don't want to get it in your car, take it to the office with you. You know, so put your pride and put your testosterone, I guess, for some of our male clients away. And, you know, who cares? It's, it's really, at the end of the day, it's about, like you said, it's our own safety. But now if we can track stuff that's really dangerous other places, it's everyone's safety. Absolutely. You have no idea what's on the bottom of our shoes when we walk out of some of those homes, the feces, yes. um, everything. So thank you for that, Corey. Absolutely. So where do you want to go with this? <laughs> so you've kind of talked a little bit about the PPE. What would you say is the number one thing that you like to express to code officers, the importance, the safety? Um, again, we touched on the PPE. What would be the second thing that you find the most important? Well, let's define PPE first, just so there's no questions there. Thank you. Respiratory, obviously our respiratory system is, is very important. And some of the things that we come across in hoarders homes, like you just said, cat hoarders, the ammonia level can be extremely high. When you get one part per million ammonia, it's, you know, you can smell it, you can feel it, but it's not really dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, when you get to around 25 parts per million, you can get uh, nausea and, you know, just you start um, your nose starts running and your eyes start watering. So your body's starting to react. A lot of, <laughs> yeah, a lot of our true uh, cat hoarding cases, especially where there's cats that are um, whole males that aren't fixed, that ammonia is so high, we can reach 150 parts per million. And it always blows us away because we go into those scenarios like, how is this person in here not even recognizing it? Well, what happens is it, it actually destroys the olfactory nerves in the nose, so they can't smell anymore. Um, that's one of the one of the first dangers. So we just want to be aware um, when we smell that we're out in the driveway just getting out. That's your first clue. When you smell the ammonia from the driveway or the street, you need respiratory protection. Sure. Uh, you can do that in a few different ways. N95 masks is probably the easiest. I would always ref, uh, refer you to full PPE as far as um, like a, a respirator. The only problem with respirators, and I talked about this in 2009, is it falls upon your superiors to actually get fit tested every year. And sure. that becomes a big issue. Um, but again, if it's your own safety and you want to do it, just get a full face respirator, half face respirator. Um, you can get one for 30 bucks for a half face, maybe a hundred bucks for a full face. But again, we're talking about your life and your well-being. The same thing comes true with rodent droppings. You know, respiratory is the biggest uh, factor we're afraid of hantavirus. Um, even bird droppings, histoplasmosis. There's a lot of these viruses and, and bacteria that we can breathe in. Um, and, you know, like when you come across mouse droppings, if hantavirus is present, there's a 38% mortality rate if you get that. And it's a virus, so there's no cure. So you just have to hope, you know. And think about how many homes we go into that have mice and, right. and rats. In some states, some rats carry it too. I mean, it's almost inevitable when you get to a level four, level five horde that you're going to have rodent droppings. So, again, I, I would say if you can't do anything other than protect your respiratory system, that's what I would say. Get a good um, at least a 10 pack of N95 masks or get a respirator that can filter that stuff out. Right. looks like we have a question from the audience or a comment from Miss Cecilia. Hi, Miss Cece. Uh, she says, Corey, you are spot on. Can you also talk about the long term health impacts when you do not or excuse me, when you do uh, not make it a habit to have PPE? Sorry, Cece. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's so many things out there. I can't say what the long term impacts are because there's there's so many different diseases that you can get in you. I, I've gotten pneumonia before because I've gone in and just the dust gets into your system. And when you ignore that over time, you're just walking around you're going to kick it up 
you can't help that. But I literally was down for a couple of weeks because I got sick, just had like a cold like symptom because of the dust and things um, that turned into bronchitis. And I still kept working and ignoring it. And then it turned into full blown pneumonia. And I was literally like on my back for two weeks in bed, just I felt like I was dying. So we can't we can't ignore those signs. Um, I, I think the bigger concern are the things that we're going to come in contact short term. I don't know enough about true long term things that we face because most of them are bacteria and viruses that you'll you'll probably realize uh, within a couple of weeks if you've gotten those or not. So right. sorry I can't answer the long term exactly, uh, CC. But um, just uh, we we have to put protection first because it is such a threat. And I think we get a little complacent in all of our jobs, my, myself included, when I go on an estimate, I don't want to offend the person and so, show up in a space suit, space suit, but you have to, <laughs> you know, just explain to them. Sometimes I'll just put shoe covers on and a mask and I'll just say, look, you know, I go into so many houses, I don't want to bring something into your house either. And I kind of put the blame on myself, you know, say, saying that I'm going to bring a mess into your house. And you know, if that makes them feel better, fine. If not, I mean, it's too bad if we didn't get your house like that. And so we have to protect ourselves. And I think most clients, I've never had a, a client, you know, yell at me or be so bothered that they didn't let me in because I wanted to at least put shoe covers and a mask on. No, that makes complete sense. You know, we, we definitely all want to go home safe. That's the goal, right, at the end of the day. So, so uh, you know, as us with code enforcement officers, I'm sure you didn't wake up in the morning, uh, one morning and say, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. I can't wait to be a, um, a hoarder's uh, um, show host and a scary clean operator and founder. But can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this, Corey? Yeah, so actually my lifelong dream since I was three, I had a next door neighbor that was a captain on the fire department and I would just cling to him. I always loved his stories. And then I had a grandfather who was like an ambulance chaser. So we would always be driving around and chasing the sirens. So I just kind of grew up knowing that's what I wanted to do. When I was in high school, I was an explorer. Um, as soon as I got out of high school, I got my EMT, my paramedic, uh, worked on an ambulance. And that's when I kind of figured out I wanted to do this side business, still wanted to be a firefighter. Uh, but I would go on so many bloody traumatic scenes like suicides, crime scenes, um, industrial accidents. And I always felt so bad for those family members that were going to be stuck with cleaning that up. And no one thinks of that happening to them until it happens. Right. And they still think until that last officer, detective, coroner leaves that it's going to get cleaned up. And so when you think, you know, let's say it's something horrific like a shotgun suicide. It's on everything in the room, the ceiling, the walls. How are they going to clean that up? they're gonna traumatize and victimize themselves again. So after enough of those, and one in particular that just really bothered me, um, I went home and told my wife, like, look, I don't know if there's a true business model here, but I have to give these people another option. So this whole business 26 years ago started as a, a crime scene cleanup company. And in that first year, we started to get calls for hoarding. And I just saw another huge opportunity to help people that there was no industry, no cleaning industry component for them. And so it just kind of grew from there. And we worked a lot with hoarders and we learned a lot about their personalities, um, their sensitivities, how uh, quiet they were about, you know, what was going on in their home. So we kind of changed our name from crime scene Stericlean to Stericlean so that we could just use that name for any type of job that we got called for. I like that. Spreading your knowledge, wealth and everything all about. <laughs> Yeah. And so I did become a firefighter, but in 2010, I had to retire because my business was growing so much. I wanted to go nationwide. Um, we were covering all of California and I just met with a bunch of attorneys and CEOs of franchises, some consultants, and they all said the same thing. There's no way you're going to be gone for 10 to 12, 24 hour shifts a month and run a nationwide company. So my lifelong dream turned into being a professional trash man of sorts. <laughs> The world is benefiting from that lifelong dream. I don't know if everyone is aware, but um, you did uh, retire as the fire captain for Orange County, correct? Yes, I was in Orange County for 15 years uh, when I retired in 2010, and I was a captain at that point. Thank you for your service, sir. Appreciate Thanks. that. Appreciate it. Yeah, so so how did you get into the whole hoarders, uh, the whole hoarders TV show? That's uh, that's another. Uh, uh, journey yeah. in itself. Yeah, that was actually um, an accident. You know, they came to us, the production company came to us saying they wanted to do a TV show on crime scene cleanup, a reality show. And again, this was back in 2009. And we said, you know what, we've tried that with Discovery, Fremantle, who does American Idol, and a few other big production companies. And it just kind of never went anywhere. I think once people saw it, they were a little scared to show it, mm -hmm. as you can imagine. 
And this production company said, well, a and &E is interested in doing it. Can we just do a, you know, what they call a sizzle reel, which is only like a seven minute reel just to show them. So we went to two hoarding homes. And as you guys all know, hoarders are reclusive, uh, don't get checked on a lot. So one of, we did two decompositions and one happened to be a hoarder. And so like we suspected, A&E was like, eh, that's a little too graphic, but what is up with that one house? Why did it have so much trash in it? So we taught them what hoarding was. And they said, well, gosh, that could be a great show. Is that a common problem? And we said, absolutely. About 5% of the population suffers, suffers from hoarding. And they said, well, let's do a pilot. And so we actually did a full 30 minute show focused on two different hoarders. Um, they got to see kind of that quirky personality that some of these hoarders have, um, and they loved it. And at the time their top show was Intervention, and they said, well, what if we brought a doctor on and kind of explored the psychology of this disorder while you guys cleaned it? And so it really was an accident. And then it grew into this show that we're still filming, you know, 13 seasons later. That's awesome. Something to be very proud of. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, some people say it's exploitation and there's a lot of negatives to it. But I think if we can take one thing away from it is it brought to the forefront, public knowledge, how big this problem truly is. Mm -hmm. So many people thought they were the only ones or their grandma or their mom or their dad were the only ones suffering from this. And, mm -hmm. and if you see the beginning when hoarders first started it, which showed a little screen at the beginning that said like one to two million people suffer from hoarding. I think now they're showing 19 million people in the US suffer from hoarding. So I think they're starting to realize too, uh, how big this problem truly is. Well, and with folks like yourself bringing awareness to this issue and how we can, as a community, come together and fix these type of problems, uh, that obviously has drawn those numbers up as well, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just the U.S. I mean, we're seeing this, you know, throughout the world. I think, you know, if we want to look for reasons, I think our society really allows this to be a, a bigger issue now. We have, you know, so much credit cards, so many salespeople on our TVs, you know, QVC, Home Shopping Network. We can just acquire things so cheaply and so easily. Um, and I think there's a lot more depression in the world today just because of how our world is. And, and what do we do when we feel bad? We like to find quick fixes to make us feel good and buying or acquiring is one of the fastest ways you can do that, but it's short lived. So it wears off and they go out and buy something else right away. So that's the problem we need to kind of figure out is how do we stop that process? And I don't think that we can. Right. And it, it should be noted that you, you are an, uh, an, a nominee for an, uh, was it an Emmy? Or a show? Yeah. Did yeah. you win? <laughs> no, nope, we got nominated, but that was, uh, we were up against a few. I think it was um, the crab people, the crab fishermen people. Oh, and, you know, deadliest one of the, catch. One of the, yeah, deadliest catch. And one of the dads died that season. And it was a pretty dramatic episode. So I don't blame them for taking it from us. Yeah. And, and, and you know, one of the reasons that we do this, um, we want to bring awareness to the industry. So, you know, on this, on this uh, channel, sometimes we, we have mayors that chime in or, you know, city council members that really don't know how to handle, uh, you know, what to do in case they have a hoarder in their town. And everybody knows as of recent, you see more in the news, you'll see like, you know, the the, the helicopter pilots pan in on hoarding houses. That's become sure. more of a trend nowadays. And, mm -hmm. and, and then it brings an outrage. Well, how come the city is not doing anything? And, you know, I always tell people these things don't happen overnight. And right. they, can't, they can't get cleaned overnight. You yeah. know, and then you posted something the other day on, you know, finding treasures, you know, and I, I reshared it, um, you know, because I do go to, and I did go into a lot of hoarding homes where you see brand new, brand new items that have never been opened, but the boxes are so urine soaked. Right. I mean, but inside there's like, you know, I, I was yeah. like um, in 2000, was it 2000? 16 i went into a house and this lady had maybe like 10 like remember those haircut flobies oh yeah <laughs> i'm like wow these are awesome <laughs> she ran in the box but the brass boxes were yep. super jacked up so yeah and as soon as you see that that's the first sign that we know that person is suffering from depression every time when you see the brand new items mm -hmm. that's the person looking for that quick high the endorphin release so they're on the phone on amazon you know but the problem again is it's so short-lived by the time that item gets to their house one they didn't need it Two, the high's gone, so they throw it in the corner, you know? And that's why you'll see these houses that are completely full. Now that's a benefit to someone if you actually get involved with cleaning it up, if they'll let that stuff go. We've, we try to find something that they truly believe in and we'll try to find a charity that kind of resonates with that so we can give all these new items, take it out of the box. You know, we'll spend the time taking it out of the box if it's dirty, 
and we'll give it to all these charities and they feel good because now they feel like their stuff at least wasn't wasted, their money wasn't wasted, they're helping someone else and it helps the charities. So I love when we go to those houses, but when we teach people, there's things that you can know about the person before you even meet them, that's one of the biggest ones. When you see a room or a house full of brand new stuff, they absolutely suffer from depression. And so when we're trying to unravel this, we need to make sure that they're in therapy or getting therapy because we know that that's one of their biggest triggers. So, Corey, based on what you're seeing in these houses, are you saying, um, you know, based on that fact that ultimately there's a different issue per each individual type of hoarder? Um, so you, you touched on the hoarder that has all of the new stuff that they may be suffering depression. You know, what about those hoarders that are they hoard trash and um, human feces and debris and things like that? Do you tend to find that their um, psychological being is in a different place? Yeah, I think what people save is very important. And, you know, if I don't know how much you remember of my lecture, Pete, it was an eight hour lecture. So I know it was a long day, but it, I talk about this stuff. And what's important is one, depression and the triggers of post-trauma are gonna be in about 90% of the people. I've never met a hoarder that's just a hoarder. They're totally normal, otherwise it's just a hoarder. There's something causing that. And there's about 15 reasons that cause 99.9% .9 of the hoarding. So we need to understand that about these clients. And that's where I really wish code enforcement could have the funding to do more than just red tag, condemn a house, clean it up, and then let them come back. Because if you remember, I asked that of you guys, anytime I teach a code enforcement class, I say, raise your hand if you've dealt with hoarding. The whole room raises their hand. How many people you know, ended up evicting the hoarder or getting them out and forcing the abatement? They all raise their hand. How many of them did the hoarder get allowed to you know, move back in? How many of you still have that person on your caseload because they filled their house right back up? Everyone raises their hand. So the problem is we're dealing with it the wrong way. Um, I know San Francisco did a study back in probably 2013 on how much money that city was spending on hoarders throughout every agency. And it was something like $6 million. Wow. So if one city is spending $6 million on, on this, the same problem, this revolving door basically that we keep going back and forth with, I think we need to shift some of that money to try to actually stop the problem. And the only way to do that is to get them into therapy and work on the the problem. We don't go into a bar and take a bottle from an alcoholic and think we solve their problems. But that's what we're doing with hoarding. We're taking the symptom away from them, but not fixing the problem, which is up here at all. And so we are going to keep going back and back and back. And that's why when we get involved, whether it's on the show or off, we put aftercare in place for that reason. They need things. They need support. So we try to get them into a support group, which we have a free one online they can join if there's no other way. There's not a lot of in-person ones, to be honest. We try to get them into therapy specifically cognitive behavioral therapy because that's the part that they really need but then they can also go to regular therapy and deal with all those underlying issues we try to get an organizer to come in and help them you know continue the process because a lot of times these these quick cleanouts we leave things in save boxes and their house really isn't completely put together and then we also want to put a kind of a safety net and so what we'll do is we'll hire a cleaning company to come in to help maintain it every two weeks at the most a month and as soon as they see even the slightest clutter come back, they have two emergency numbers, one for us and one for a family or friend. And so doing those four things, they're continuing to work on the behavior problem with the therapist. They're working on the organizational skills. They have the support they need to talk through it with other people going through it. And they have a safety net in place while their house is getting cleaned. And if they can do those four things, it should stop the problem completely and reverse the 97% recidivism rate hoarding has. That's terrible numbers. If we just go clean and 97 out of 100 are going to go right back to filling it up. Right. We're just spinning our wheels. Right. Wow, that's nothing against, Yeah, nothing against code enforcement. That's just the job they have to do. And that's, that's the tools they have. A clipboard, a template, you know, you have to do this or we're going to kick you out. Like, it's unfair to you guys because they're not giving you the tools to actually fix the problem properly. Sure. No, that's why we appreciate having you on today. Knowing what we don't know is is not powerful. So thank you yeah. for that extra information and any resources. Um, you know, and that's a lot why why we're doing this um, to come together as a community as a whole to provide each other those resources because there are entities that deal with this in such a high um, fashion, and there's some that don't deal with it at all. So yeah, absolutely. I wish so there was more help. Question. Oh, so so one of the one of the questions that I have is uh, how important is it to get family involved? Because what I notice with uh, with orders, uh, a lot of times it's a hidden it's a hidden thing that they hide from their families. So how in in your experience, how important is it for you know either your company or you know whether it be code enforcement or adult protective services 
or to, to kind of intervene and get the family involved? So I think it's really important to question the person suffering from hoarding and ask them about their family because you bring the wrong person in and they're going to just undermine the whole process. If they have someone that is supportive, which most hoarders, if they have, you know, a few children, one of them has not given up yet. <laughs> That's just what we typically find is one will still be supportive. There might even be like a best friend or someone close that can be there during the cleanup because they will need that support. They feel so alone. And now you have code enforcement, maybe a company coming to force the cleanup on them. I mean, we have to have something positive for them. And so there's a lot of tools that we use, not only family, but family is important, but just don't bring that wrong person in because again, they'll destroy everything you've worked up to this point to accomplish. And they'll walk, you know, just throw this crap away, mom, this is disgusting, you know, and they don't have the compassion needed. So I think finding the right support whatever that is or whoever that is is very important especially on that cleanup day or cleanup days awesome that, a question from mr melvin uh, says can you mandate a family mem family member to be a part of this process well again if it's the right person we wouldn't have to <laughs> so i can't force anyone to do anything i wish you know i wish we could force hoarders to get all the help they need but we can't so i wouldn't want to mandate someone because then again they're going to be there on the wrong on the wrong circumstances and, and their mind won't be in the right place like if they're forced to be there i think it's important that they would do some aftercare i think it's very important for family members to get into therapy too that doesn't mean there's something wrong with them they have to learn how to deal with their loved ones. And a lot of times when a hoarder won't get help, we, we tell family like, stop, stop trying because until that person wants help, they're not gonna get it. So you guys need to learn how to live to kind of cut that anchor because it's affecting your life. It's affecting your relationships when the hoarder doesn't even care. You know, so we have to be as supportive for the family members sometimes as we do the hoarders themselves. And sometimes on the show, uh, I don't know if, you know, there's a lot of them, but several of the episodes that I've been on, we give the aftercare to the family because we know the hoarder's not going to accept it. Or if they say they won't accept it, then we'll give it to the rest of the family. Learn how to deal with this person because this problem is not going away anytime soon. That's a helpful resource. Mm -hmm. And Corey, um, I, I see, I, I mean, I've been on different types of hoarding, uh, you know, animal hoarding, newspaper hoarding. Um, can you discuss the different types of hoarding that you've experienced and which may be the more difficult ones to deal with? Sure. I, I mean, the, the ones that we struggle with the most are, are animal hoarders um, because they tend to, even when they get the house clean, they tend to pop up doing it in another county, in another area. So I'm glad some of the laws have changed to allow the animal control people um, to not only find them and arrest them. Again, it's mental illness, so it's that's a tough call. But they can also track them, you know, when they get out. And I think animal hoarders are tough because one, typically animal hoarders stuffed animal hoarders, doll hoarders, they tend to have really poor times dealing with people. And that's why they're dealing with animals and inanimate objects that they give emotion to and names to, and they think they're real. Um, so I think because of the past they've been through, those are usually abusive relationships, feeling of abandonment, and their animals and their stuffed animals and dolls can't abandon them. They can't abuse them. They can't, you know, they're in control in their own mind. And so control is always a big part of hoarding. And so we always have to make sure no matter what they're collecting, that that person feels like they're in control throughout the process, because that's how you're going to make the most progress. Um, I, like I said, they're almost all going to be suffering, I would say at least 90% from uh, trauma and depression, doesn't matter what they're collecting. Um, but, but we see things like um, bibliomania, where they're collecting all types, types of literature. It could be books, magazines, newspapers. I mean, we see that all the time. And I always tell people that think hoarders are dumb. Why would a dumb hoarder collect books and magazines and literature? This is usually a career path that they have. Maybe they were um, a lawyer, an engineer. They just can't turn that off. They're brilliant minds. As you guys know, a lot of our hoarders are very smart. Xylogomania, again, pure trash. Uh, and they don't start out collecting just trash but when it gets to a level four or five and they lose complete functionality of their home they don't take out their trash they don't throw anything away properly anymore so usually the top of a hoard is going to be mostly trash um, we see a lot of people that are homeless that are given homes um, from some charities and stuff they'll keep dumpster diving and bringing in trash because they think well eventually this gig will be up and i won't have a place anymore so i'm going to collect as much as i can again it doesn't make sense to us um, 
There's recyclers that we see a lot that have a ton of recycling and they keep saying, yeah, I'm gonna take this, I'm gonna recycle this, I'm gonna do that. It never goes anywhere. Um, there's, so there's just these certain types of um, things. I mean, if we all became hoarders, what is your interest? What do you think you would collect? <laughs> I know when, my, when I die, I'm worried about my wife because she loves animals. So she'll be one of those. <laughs> baseball hats. Oh, you're gonna be a baseball hat <laughs> Yeah, so I think a lot of it falls back on interests. Um, but I think a lot of it also comes down to what they can collect and acquire that makes them feel good. Maybe it's not exactly what they're interested in, but something's just easier to give them that quick rush and high and, you know, feeling that they're saving something for later. I always put hoarders in two categories for the most part. And it's the ones that are living in the past, that can't let go of the past. And it's the what ifers of the future. You know, they have everything they could possibly need. Well, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if I need this one day? You can't live that way or you're never truly living in the present. And that's what we try to get hoarders to do is live in the present. Stop holding on to all those amazing past memories you have. and Let's make some new ones. So there's a lot. And that's why this is an eight hour class that I give because there's so much to talk about and so many different um, things you have to touch on and truly understand to help a hoarder. And what they collect is one of the first things we want to know on how to help them because it does tell you a lot about them. We just don't have the time to totally dive into it today. <laughs> I can appreciate that. And, and, and like you said, there's a lot of brilliant people and you know, people don't realize that, you know, with books, it creates a fire and egress hazard as you as a fireman, I, I'm, you know, it, it turns into kindling real, really fast. And, you know, a lot of times when we deal with hoarders, it's not because, you know, uh, we don't want to deal with the person it's it's creating a, a safety hazard for those around them whether it's sure. the ammonia or you know the stray cats uh, whether you know it just you know the amount of feces on a property or even recyclables i mean it'd be, it can become an attractive nuisance for people yeah. like hey let, hey kids come on let's let's see something cool and then they mm -hmm. go to the hoarder house and it's just it, it, it's one of those um, really hard things to deal with. And that's why a lot of code enforcement officers do deal with them. And me being in the world of code enforcement, same thing with Rachel, we see this. It's, you know, some of us have those caseloads and you've seen it. They can go 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And, you know, sometimes you have to go through an abatement process or sometimes even a receivership. And, it, right. those, and those are not fun because if you put a human element, you're displacing somebody and that's never a good place to be in code enforcement where you have to make those decisions, but sometimes it has to be done for the benefit of the community. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you talk about bibliomania and the fire danger, what I'm worried about more in a true bibliomania where you have, and you'll, we just filmed one where we had 20,000 books upstairs. And so what I really want to stress for all, anyone listening to this is we need to be concerned about the structure itself. It's not built to hold as much as it is, maybe 25 to 40 pounds a square foot. So when you get a house now that has, I, I don't even know, 100,000 pounds in there, like this one that we had, we had, well, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Joe. Good to see you too. <laughs> yeah, Joe's an old buddy of mine. He had to throw that Matt Paxson comment out there. <laughs> I hope he's an old buddy. <laughs> but honestly, like we just filmed one and the doctor got there to do the walkthrough, which is one of the first things that happened on our show. And she mentioned before they even went in or maybe right when they went in that there was a cracked beam in the basement. Mm -hmm. So they immediately shut everything down, called me over there. I went down in the basement and there was actually four um, floor joists in a row that were cracked. One huge crack and uh, three small ones. But, you know, when I say small, the cracks are this big. And that was in the basement. Then there was a first floor, a second floor. And again, this was a bibliomania hoard. So you can imagine how much weight that structure and how much stress that structure is under. Right. And so the last thing we want to do is start walking around in there and have just, you know, another 150, 200, 250 pounds. Just one person could be that trigger. So we actually had to halt production, call a structural engineer. He came out and, you know, said, you're right. You can't do this without, you know, jacking up the basement. So we had to actually get some bracing and put it up. And But how many of you guys really go to a level five, a big old, you know, huge house that's very full and think about what stress that house is under? Um, yeah, a paper hoard is a fire danger, but to me, especially books, that's gonna be hard to light on fire. It'll be great fuel once it's going, but you put a book there with a lighter, it's not, there's no air in there, you know? So it's actually hard to light that. Newspapers and stuff are a different story. 
So think about the weight and what this container is going through, um, not just the person, because again, when we talk about your safety, this thing is under a lot of stress and, right. it, and it's not built for that. So just be careful. We hear about collapses and stuff all the time, not just of the clutter, but of you know basements and homes. Makes absolute sense thinking about the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that you'll see structurally, um, uh, animal hoarding cases, it's a lot of urine that soaks into that wood and it tends to uh, buckle that wood and makes it very unstable. That's that's one of the things that a lot of code officers don't take in consideration. Uh, right. The other thing is a lot of times they lose utilities and they're bringing in water and, you know, you see the gaping holes on the roof and I mean, there's mold all over the place and I mean, just going in there, you see how hazardous it can be. And, and yeah. with uh, your company or, or um, biohazard cleaning companies, you see that like I couldn't do the job because first of all, I'm like, <laughs> I just couldn't do your job. <laughs> I, I can go in there, take care of business and bring you guys in there and come check in on you guys once in a while, yeah. see how the cleanup's going. But we don't experience that stuff that you guys experience. like. When somebody's right. fighting you over, you know, a garment that that's urine soaked, and you're like, it needs to go, and they're like, no, that's my garment. And, yeah, and, I know. We don't see that. So yeah, it's it's tough. If you guys happen to see this episode next season, when, whenever it comes out, it was in uh, Wisconsin, and she's a little person, so she'll probably be easy to remember. But sh- she's the one with all the books, and it's just interesting to watch every couple hours from us removing stuff. I'd go down and have to crank these jacks because they become loose again, you know, because we were taking so much load out of there just at every couple hours. Um, it was just, it was really unbelievable um, that that stress on that house. And the fact that it hadn't caved in over all those years was surprising because the parents were hoarders. Now she was living in it, she's a hoarder. So you're having these generations of hoarding in one house. Um, we actually put up a shoot system where we could slide all these books down just to save time and, you know, not get people hurt. Carrying books up and downstairs, 20,000 books, you're going to have an injury. So we, we got to think safety when we do cleanup, too. Absolutely. So so we, we did have a clip of one of your sh- the, the show. So if those... If any of you haven't seen the show, we have a quick clip for you guys so you guys can watch, uh, see Corey in action. And, and it's, 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 it's a process. Uh, dealing with hoarders is such a process. So we'll go ahead and play this real fast. Okay. Throwing things out of anger now, and I want to make sure that you're not throwing away things that you really do want. Gail, my sister, oh. is upset, and I, I'm trying to alleviate her suffering. I, I'm trying to cooperate. You disengage from this process and just toss stuff without talking through it and understanding why and all the emotion involved, you're not going to learn anything from it. Uh huh. So, your landlord is not going to let this stay here. Carpe diem, carpe diem, right? <laughs> Seize the moment. Dad. Seize the moment. Because you're looking at it like, I really don't need this stuff. I'm just enjoying this sensation. It's, it's a new way of thinking. It's almost like an intoxicant. <laughs> One of the things, uh, Corey, you are consistent. You've been consistent for years, and that's something that you know that that's really admirable. It, consistency is key. And one thing about this video that I noticed is that the person was renting, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, code enforcement deals with the property owner, and yeah. it, it goes into a whole different like eviction process, and <laughs> that's a whole other yeah. mess, right? It is. We get involved in those quite a bit. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the hoarder usually is going to leave and the, and the landlord is going to be, or, you know, the owner is going to be stuck with it. Um, but they're probably happy because at least the person's gone and they're not going to destroy their property anymore. But, you know, these poor people that don't check on their properties and their tenants, mm-hmm. but every 10 years, it can get really out of control. And so it's, you know, but I think it was interesting in that clip and you'll see it a lot in the shows. We get, we get mad when they don't throw something away and then they start throwing everything away and we get mad. It's, it's that balance that we have to find. I want them to let go, but I want them to think as they're letting go because hoarder's hangover is very real. We come back the second day and they regret everything that's gone or they've dug through the dumpster overnight and pulled it all back in. So there is so much psychology to what we do 
that we really do want them to throw it away or let it go the right way, not just let it go. Because at the end of the day, we know they're going to fill it back up. So we're really trying in a few days to start that process of them thinking differently. I don't care if they clean their whole house for this show. When I first started, I did. I thought, oh my God, there's no way we're going to finish. What are we going to do? Because that's what I was used to an end product being off the show. But now I've learned these people aren't customers that I would take on off the show. They're just not, they're not ready. Uh, we're trying to get them through some crisis. And typically once that crisis is over, they go right back to hoarding. So the few days that we have there, I'm more, and the doctors are more um, in tune with just getting them to start thinking differently. Maybe if there's an underlying family issue or some huge you know, thing in the vault, so to speak, we try to bring that up and help them talk through it so that we can fix the family issues. At the end of the day, if we get one room clean, great. It's a starting point. And, and hopefully they see that space um, as a fresh start and they enjoy it. You know, what we don't want is to empty space and now they feel totally exposed and scared. So there's there's a lot of balancing that goes on during those shows, but that's why I stay consistent because I know that right moment when the person actually does have kind of a switch in their thinking, not just letting stuff go because we want them to. And some of these homes with the hoarding, um, animal hoarding, how often do you see like a demolition actually being, I mean, that the house is so messed up that it's, sometimes it's in the best interest just to demolish the home. How, how often do you see that? Well, I think the majority of the time we'll gut it down to the studs, but you know, the outside and the studs are fine. Uh, most of the time it's just everything you see on the surface. It's all their cabinetry. It could be the drywall. It could be all that stuff, but usually behind the walls is fine. I mean, it's still, that's a, that's something a hoarder's not gonna be able to afford. And we know that. Um, so when a city comes in and says, hey, you have to get rid of this ammonia smell, the neighbors are complaining. Well, know what that is in some cases, that means they have to gut the house because that smell is not gonna go away because it is literally absorbed into every surface. So what are the options at that point? If you know you're telling your person they have to do this and that means the only way to do it is to gut the house, how can they afford a cleanup? And then on top of that, a rebuild of an entire home for a hundred grand plus. Um, so sometimes it's just not possible. And then, you know, you guys have a hard job because you have to evict someone. And how is that better than having a roof over your head? It, it, it's not, you know, city of Ranch Cucamonga in California, where our, one of my headquarters offices, they evicted someone because the neighbors kept complaining and then making this big deal about it. They evicted him. And I forget how long into him being homeless, he died. Now there was a huge backlash. You know, you evicted this poor person because they had a messy house. Now he's dead. So I, I wouldn't want your job. That's a hard thing to be juggling. And that's why I'm trying to get awareness to this, that we have to work on the behavior because if we can help change the behavior and get them thinking differently, it'll help your caseloads and it'll help the end results so much better. You're gonna deal with them, if not forever, until they die. <laughs> that's just a known fact. In, in, in your experience, and I know this is kind of a weird subject, but when when you do clean up, how often you know how often do you see that they pass away really right after, you know, kind of like well, somebody <laughs> retires and then they pass away. Yeah, it's another fine balancing thing. We've had several on the show that have died very soon after we've gone and emptied their house out, and that's again the last thing we want. I remember working with a Rialto Code Enforcement in California when I was living there, and we had the San Bernardino Hoarding Task Force at our office. We actually started it because there wasn't one, and I needed to get all these people together that work with hoarders in our county. Um, and Chris from Rialto came to the meeting one day and he said, look, I've been working with this lady for six years. Uh, when it spills out to the front, you know, we bring our work release people in to clean it up and then it goes away for a few months and then they call again. So I went and met with her and, and Chris and she also had six storage units and her, you know, she was in her eighties and her dream and passion was to open up a dollar store and sell all this stuff. Well, it was all garbage, trash, nothing sellable whatsoever. But I told him, look, she's not hurting anybody with these storage units. And I'm telling you right now, that is her life passion. That is what she wakes up for every day. That's her dream. That's her purpose. If you take that away from her, she's going to be dead. And, and so you have to kind of understand what you have to understand kind of how in, ingrained this hoarding is with them and if it is their future or their dreams and we squash those sometimes they they just lose their purpose to live they really do and it's happened a couple times on the show and i felt terrible about it but one for the show was a guy who had like a structure same thing it was like the roof had caved in and kids are walking by this main street the city said you have to knock that down so as part of the show we knocked it down and that guy probably died four months later and I felt terrible because I know that's a part of it. No, I didn't kill him, but I killed his purpose. 
And so a lot of times when we clean out these homes, we have to find them a new identity and a new purpose as part of our process so that they are not stuck on letting go of all this stuff and what they were. So th there's just so much psychology to this. It's, it's so much more than just carrying things out of a house. It really is. And there's some tragic endings when we do it the wrong way. And one of the things that we do, um, we try to bring awareness into this pr this platform, this profession. You know, that, that's why we have you. You know, uh, we reached out and, and you graciously uh, agreed to come on here. And for the purpose of awareness, this reaches a national audience because hoarding isn't restricted to a city or a county. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, some right. of our parents are hoarders. You know, some of our grandparents are hoarders. Some of the, the grandparents grew up in the World War II era where they needed to hold on to everything. And, you know, so, and, and they still live like that today. And, and, yeah. and they did pass, like you said, it's generational. They pass it on to the children. Hey, you need to, to hold on to this. And, you know. Yeah, and we have to remember too, there's a genetic component a lot of times. When you hear a family that, oh, my, my parents were hoarders, their parents were hoarders. There's actually two genetic components that they have found. Now that we're starting to um, spend money on investigating hoarding because we know it's you know so prevalent they have found an abnormality in the frontal lobe of the brain only in hoarders and it gets passed down from genera generation to generation it can even even skip a generation but it's there um, chromosome 14 they're finding something on that is only in hoarders so you know it's it, it can be a learned behavior but it can also be genetic and when you have both when you have a genetic pre-factor to hoard and you're learning that when you're growing up and never get taught the skills to be organized or clean and you're also also usually stunted socially because you don't have friends over because you're so embarrassed you know there's a lot and that's why understanding why the person's hoarding how they got there what they've been through it's so important to how we reverse it you know i always say it's a roadmap and we have to learn their roadmap how they got there then we have to reverse it and until we know all those factors uh, that cause it how do we know how do we fix it so that now we have to build trust we have to build a relationship so the person will divulge everything to us you know and that's not easy to do but if you really want to help this person and get them out of hoarding so it'll never it's never cured but so they can manage it for the rest of their life we have to know these things we have to otherwise they'll be right back to it again it's just like taking a bottle from an alcoholic or a heroin needle from a drug addict and saying hey, you're welcome i just fixed you <laughs> not even close makes perfect sense we have to have that first key ppe empathy um, understanding listening and truly providing those resources I know in my jurisdiction, um, they utilize a co-responder um, for mental health crises with the public, such as, you know, officers are dealing with. But I truly see um, a whole nother meaning to the word co-responder and how those services and those resources are so powerful um, because that psychological information is coming out just a different way uh, with a hoarder versus maybe, you know, a criminal that the PD is dealing with. So I encourage all municipalities around here to really look into that co-responder program, um, having those resources on the front line, not just saying, hey, you know, we have to deal with this problem. Give this person a call. Um, so mm -hmm. very important. I think it's really amazing when you look at how many people get involved in a hoarding case, you know, if they do it properly. And that's why I think these hoarding task forces are so important because they bring everyone together to collaborate. Um, how many times have you gone in and looked on a counter or somewhere and you see business cards for people from the city or county? You didn't even know we're involved in this case. Right. You know, so the communication is key. And sometimes you'll hit a roadblock with what your skill or what you're allowed to do. But another agency within the organization or within the area can then pick it up. So right. I think really coming together and discussing cases cut um, privately, you know, but I think you'll find a lot more resolve to this stuff because, like you said, bring in as many resources as you can to not only just fix your problem, but the ongoing and the other steps that are going to follow, they're going to. So you might as well just try to try to do it correctly the first time. And I think that's why a lot of these task forces have been formed because they've seen that there is success with bringing in all the right people to help this problem. Sounds like your staff is all of them. You've got your psychiatrist, your cleanup, your, <laughs> you're all of them on board. So congratulations to you for that. We try. And, and I'll say one other thing. One other thing real quick that you guys are kind of um, at a disadvantage of is most hoarders hate authority. Mm -hmm. And so what does code enforcement represent? Authority. And sometimes they show up with a badge and a uniform. I would highly suggest if you're allowed to with your agency, not showing up with a badge and a uniform, because as soon as you do, they're immediately put on the defense by that. Okay? So, I mean, it's just, it's a known thing and it's hard, but 
you know, if you really do want to try to make the most progress with someone, try going there in your regular street clothes and just seeing if that makes a difference. I've known a lot of people from um, fire prevention and code enforcement that do that. Um, and it's very successful. And then another big thing, I don't remember we've talked about this, Pete, but finding things in common with the hoarder. Take the conversation somewhere else. I remember when I taught somewhere in California, I'll never forget this, a guy from Code Enforcement came up afterward and he goes, man, that section you talked about, about finding things in, in common. I had this hoarder on my caseload for years. And one day he let me in a room that I'd never seen before. And in this one corner, like three square feet, it was clean and there was three guitars standing there. And I, I was in a band, I loved it. And so we just started talking about it. This guy ended up joining his band and over time cleaning up his whole house because he found something and someone of all people, the code enforcement officer, that was just in common. And it really works. We'd use it all the time. It could be Monopoly that we see on the floor or something. We say, oh, I play Monopoly with my kids all the time. But it's the commonality thing. You right. know, that they see you up here, they're down here. You're at this authority, you're this you know scary person. And when you just talk normal to them, and and find things in common it puts them at ease and sometimes the conversation goes totally away from hoarding but it makes the most impact right absolutely and, and i would agree Corey. there's there's a you know there's there's always a facet of authority you know when it comes to code enforcement and you know some of us wear you know like a soft polo and and we talk to the public you know as people you know, and sometimes people come geared up, knock on the door and people are like, hey, hey where's your warrant <laughs> right, right off the bat? And, you know, yeah. it, it can be scary. So, you know, but we always advocate that every jurisdiction needs to set their own rules and boundaries, uniform and criteria. So in, 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 in your experience, I'm, I'm going to ask you for two different lists um, for For first of all, if someone's creating a task for, let's say, a little small community is creating a task force. Who should be on the task force? And then the second portion is if um, to have a what's your recommended PPE from the top of your head? I know th sure. I mean, this is an informal list, but yeah, uh, no, no task force, what would it be? Yeah. So, I mean, depending on the city, like you said, a small city, I would at least have police, fire. If you have code enforcement, have code enforcement, APS, CPS. We even had people from the court system um, on ours. You know, so we need all the mental health components. We need the people that are going to be going to the houses and doing these inspections, which is usually the police, fire and code, animal control, vector control. Those were a part of ours because they all can play a part in this, obviously. Um, I think that's the majority of who we had on ours. Um, but if you don't have one and you want one, reach out to some in your surrounding areas and just see, you know, learn from them. How did you start? You can call me, you know, I'll talk to you about how we started it and how it grew from two people to so big, we couldn't even have it at our office, which sat 30 people. So eventually, you know, we moved it over to animal control, actually uh, had a big community room that we, we used. Um, and then have conferences, have speakers. Oh, as part of your task force, please allow private like cleaning companies in because you're gonna need them. And it's better right. to know who they are because there's some bad companies out there, I'll be quite honest with you, that will take advantage or they'll go out there and they'll pull all the good stuff and sell it. Um, we never get involved in selling ever, just for that reason. Even if they beg us to, we won't because we don't ever want someone to blame us for selling something and keeping money. Um, but l allow private people in there. Um, bring some therapists if they're willing to join. Um, you know, that's such a huge part of how to really find help for them. Again, don't just focus on the cleanup aspect. There's so many people that I meet that I won't even do a cleanup for because I know they're not ready. Um, so that would, I hope that answers that question of who you should really have as part of it. As far as your PPE goes, you should, of course, you know, in priority, respiratory first. So again, N95 masks or respirators, half or full face. Um, if you need goggles because you have a half face or a mask, have uh, goggles. We need shoe covers because again, we don't want to track the stuff into our cars, to our offices, to our homes. Uh, and then on some bad ones, we were full uh, Tyvek coveralls too. Those are usually for the really bad animal ones or some, we've had some where there's just spider webs and spiders everywhere, or just a lot of rodent activity or a lot of human waste. You know, we let a lot of the level fives, their plumbing isn't working. So they're using bathtubs and buckets and, you know, two liter bottles, you're going to see it all. So um, that's the full get up and then gloves. You know, so whatever you have to touch, um, you're protected. So in some cases, you should be 100% covered. You shouldn't have your clothing, skin, hair, anything, you know, out there because it's just that bad inside. And, and in, in this world of COVID today, how, how, how is the cleanups a little bit different? I know you're already geared up anyways for, 
any type of pathogens, but yeah. how has COVID affected your, your you know, overall um, uh, response? It hasn't. I mean, we're a, we do disinfection for COVID, so it doesn't really affect us at all. I think more for us, especially in the beginning, sorry, there's no earthquake. I just hit my desk. <laughs> I think in the beginning, it was really making people comfortable to have strangers in their house. Sure. Um, so sometimes they're a little fearful just that we're going to bring something to them versus them giving us something or their house giving them. So I think you just need to, you know, feel the customer out. And if they're comfortable, great. If you want to wear a mask, great. I'll be quite honest. Those cloth masks that everyone's running around in don't do anything. We know that, you know, the particulate size of COVID and most organisms are going to go right through the T-shirt material. Or So really, your only protection is an N95 mask or a respirator. Good advice. And good to know. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, other than that, we really appreciate you. Uh, we're, we're hitting the hour. I told you when we say 30 minutes, we can go on for like eight hours. <laughs> well, exactly. And I could too. So I know so, we got to cut off. But if anyone has a question. You know, I, I, one of the things that we really want to stress is that um, biohazards are um, a concern for any code enforcement officer. If you've never thought about it as a concern, you know, there people can get sick. There's so many diseases out there. Uh, airborne pathogens, you know, things that uh, mice have. Uh, uh, it, it's just, it, it's insane. Like me personally, I can't go into, you know, I can now tell the difference between cat urine, uh, uh, mice urine, human urine. It just, I, I built that kind of, which is a horrible trait to, to have. But I mean, you know, it's impressive to some people. I'm like, hey, that's that's rabbit urine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, who knows? But you yeah. build these, uh, these, these, these tools. You know, same thing with insects. Do you guys do a uh, pest? Uh, uh, do you deal with a lot of pests? You can tell like the, you know. We do. Yeah, we even do bed bug prep. We don't, we're not an exterminator, but we deal with, you know, what can an exterminator do when there's bed bugs in a horde? Nothing. So we have to go in and work in that environment, clear it out, you know, clear out the clutter. And we'll always work directly with the exterminator because they're all a little different on how they want the house, where they want the belongings. Um, but yeah, we deal with every kind um, because they're in all these homes. There's no way they're the perfect ecosystem, you know, all the food and drinks and shelter that they could possibly want. So it's just, if you don't have them, you're going to. Yeah. Another thing I forgot to mention too is, you know, needles. Um, we do not just, not drugs necessarily, but they could just be diabetic. A lot of our older people are. So that's one of the biggest things that I think people overlook is the potential for needles being in there. And we see them all the time. So the last PPE I would recommend is getting steel toe and steel shank. The whole bottom sole of your shoe has metal in it. I mean, just think about like what I call man hordes, all the construction projects and the lumber and the stuff in the backyard. And we're walking over, stepping on nails, broken glass. It's a, it's a requirement. It's mandatory for any Stericlin employee that they have to have steel toe, steel shank shoes, um, no matter what. And, and, you know, I know many jurisdictions offer that as part of their um, benefits package to have, um, you know, shoe protection. Is there any particular shoe that you, that you personally prefer or any, just anything with shank? No. Or, um, I know we're yeah, not I, anything, but, you know. No, I'd say as long as it, it comes with that. I mean, you can get cheap ones at Walmart even. I think they have them now um, up to really expensive ones, you know, like the fire department wears. So just find some. Uh, that's all that matters is that you're protected because sometimes you're standing in the middle of a horde and you look down and all of a sudden you see a needle or a hundred needles and they're just camouflaged by all that stuff. I show that picture every lecture I get to it. One of my estimators looking down and he's literally standing with needles all around him, but there was cat food containers and all these bright things and it just kind of blended in. And I always thank him for taking that picture because it just spoke volumes on, on something we can find ourselves in and then it's too late. You still got to walk out of there. So you're not going to hover or fly. <laughs> now, and here's another question that I, I may, may, it's kind of interesting. Now, with the, some of the drug users, you know, do you see some hoarding tendencies in some of uh, those individuals? And, and what's the process, you know, as far as removing some of the drywall because of the uh, saturation of uh, meth ingredients into the walls? Yeah, it's really scary now, especially with fentanyl. I mean, that's the thing that scares us the most is because just a little bit of powder and dust sitting around uh, you come in contact with and you can go down again that's why we carry narcan um, because it's so prevalent now and yeah you get these hoarding cases or in our case we clean deaths it could be a, a decomposition we didn't know that he overdosed you know on heroin or something so we actually carry little field test kits and they're, they're cheap they maybe cost a dollar to two dollars each and if you come across dust or something we can actually just 
swab it in the sample and shake it and it'll either turn purple or brown and tell us if it's heroin uh, or fentanyl. So maybe even invest in something like that just in case you find yourself in an environment. But again, as we're walking through these places, kicking it up, if you start to see any signs, um, you know, needles, spoons, all the drug paraphernalia things that you'd see in a drug house, which I'm sure you go into a lot, but I mean, that's just such a huge problem now. If you guys find yourself getting called to more of these, you know, dilapidated, rundown, abandoned houses that are boarded up, you know, there's going to be drug use in them. I mean, it's just a, a given. So as part of this supply list, maybe you need to look into those kits and have your agency buy you Narcan, even if you have to get it through the fire department or something, you know, I would get it. There's no reason it's so cheap that, and it is the only thing that's going to save your life at that point. So, and another thing I wouldn't do is ever go to a house like that by myself. Because if you drop, there's no one there to administer the Narcan or call 911. I 100% agree. Well, I guess that means it's time to go. <laughs> All right. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, it, it's an hour. So we're at an hour mark. And normally we reserve this time because I know people at work. So yeah. but we really thank you for being on. And Rachel is your biggest fan. So she's like, she was so excited. Couldn't sleep last night. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chalmers, for giving us the privilege of coming on today. We really appreciate it. It was great and awesome to talk to you. Yeah. And if anyone ever needs help, please call us. Um, I'm more than happy to walk someone through any help they could possibly need with a case or anything. Doesn't doesn't mean we're going to clean it up. I just want to be a resource for code enforcement. I've always, like I said, I did this for two weeks, did all those free lectures for California. I just want you guys to be safe and know how to make the most progress. So, um, call 1-800-HORRORS. I'm at extension 200. And you can always reach me if I'm not traveling or shooting a show somewhere. Thank you, Mr. Corey Chalmers. We so very appreciate you. Yeah, thank you all. Be safe. Have a beautiful day, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We really appreciate your time, Corey. Thank all you. All right. Take care, everybody. Guys. See ya. There you go. 1-800-HORRORS. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Bye. Take care.